Please be seated. We've been singing of the Lord as our shepherd. We think on that theme, I think it's important for us to recognize that sheep did not evolve from lower life forms. God created sheep as dependent creatures. He designed them to need a shepherd. A shepherd to lead them, to pasture, to care for their needs, to protect them from predators and the elements and sometimes from one another. I mean, look at these pictures. I'm going to display a few sheep up here. Does this animal look like its ancestry won the survival of the fittest sweepstakes? Now, I think, honestly, that's a goat. But that's just classic, isn't it? Look at these creatures. This is survival of the fittest. There's nowhere anywhere in the past that these things came from that source. These are sheep. And we see in their form, in their shape, they are dependent creatures. God purposefully uses sheep more than any other animal that He created to describe His people. Now we have to get the point, and many don't get the point. In fact, many are saying that the Bible is outdated and should be dismissed on this point because it's derogatory to speak about people as sheep. But we need to understand what God is saying. Sheep are not particularly bright creatures. They're not courageous. They're very self-oriented. It would be stupid for us to think that the Bible belittles the church when it speaks of us as sheep comprising a flock. God calls us, we know, to be wise, to be courageous, to be selfless. Everything a sheep is not. The Bible calls us to imitate the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, not to imitate physical sheep. So understanding that, I think we can be larger than those who want to dismiss this imagery. We must grasp that God uses the imagery of a flock to help us understand the necessity of leadership to the health of the church. He uses this image to help us to understand our utter dependence upon God as shepherd. Now Jesus so loves His flock that He refuses to leave us without direction and guidance. What has He provided for us? The local church has the guiding light of Holy Scripture. The local church has the illuminating, convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the local church also has the strengthening, edifying effect of one another. Of the members of the body building one another up in love. But Jesus also supplies His flock with under-shepherds. People who are called to oversee the spiritual health of the assembly. He does not leave His church rudderless and with no idea how He wants her to be managed leaving the flock to find out on its own how every particular local assembly is to be governed. 
Jesus loves us more than that. He has prepared for us more than that. God gives governing officials to a nation, coaches to a team, conductors to an orchestra, and to His church, His chosen flock, He gives spiritual shepherds. They are part of the sheep. They are themselves sheep in the flock of God. But they are designed in Scripture, identified in Scripture, as those who would serve in a particular capacity to help and to lead God's flock. As we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 today, we come back to this book as we work our way through to the end and to this last chapter. We come to chapter 5 today in 1 Peter. We remember that Peter has been speaking pointedly about the reality of persecution and suffering for Christ. These are people who are under great pressure because of their relationship with the Lord. And he tells them and teaches us to anticipate this. This is who we are in this world. We've learned that suffering for Christ is an essential aspect of the life of the church. Peter has taught us much about how to endure suffering, not with litigation, not by retaliation, not by withdrawal. We are called rather to stand with courage and fidelity, choosing to obey God rather than the flesh and entrusting ourselves to God as we continue to do good. We're to stand with Christ and to take it. We're to stand with courage and to speak the truth knowing that it may bring great opposition. We're to follow the example of Christ who we remember ended up on a cross. As we enter chapter 5, Peter now stresses the importance of local church leadership, and I think we need to recognize that he's stressing it in times of persecution particularly. This is true of all churches, of what is said here, but think of it in the context of persecution. And we see that with the very first word, which is often overlooked. In fact, in some translations, it's not even translated, which I think is a shame. But we have here the first word, so... Now, some would say that's just now moving on to another topic, but it seems that the way this word is used in the Greek text of the New Testament, it is actually drawing a connection to what comes before. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and he goes on into his exhortation. I think the so connects the instructions here with the instructions on suffering that have been preceding in in chapter 4 and before that. Peter is saying, because the church is called to suffer for Christ, I then exhort the elders among you. Now before he exhorts the elders that are among them, he identifies with those elders as he says here in verse 1, I as a fellow elder. Now many have seen this as a purposeful statement of humility. That that's what Peter is trying to do here, is to be humble. He could say, I am an apostle which is a position of greater authority, and we believe as a church is a position that passed away with those 12 apostles. He doesn't use apostle, but he says, I am an elder. I don't think that Peter is really seeking to be humble here. I don't think that's his primary purpose. He's already called himself an apostle in verse 1 of the first chapter. And he's telling these guys what to do. 
So to use the word elder here, I don't think that's the purpose of it. Rather, I think the idea is identification with their role and function in the church. I am an elder like you are as you serve the congregation. And as an elder, Peter is fitted to exhort them because he also, he says here, was one who was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I don't think necessarily that means he stood at the cross and watched Jesus suffer. That's the ultimate use of the word suffering of Christ is his death on the cross. Peter may not have been there to witness Christ crucified, but he did witness Christ suffer, did he not? Walking with him through his earthly ministry, he saw the opposition. He watched Jesus take it from his opponents. And he was there on the night that Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and he went with him ultimately to the high priest's home where Jesus was very much opposed and suffered. His point is simply that he watched Jesus suffer for doing good. He watched him suffer. He watched the victorious Christ. And he rejoices with the victorious Christ that he is also, verse 1, a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Which way is he looking? Once again, here we find Peter looking forward. Looking to the era of vindication. The era where persecution will end. The triumph that will come when God's people will be rewarded and the era of persecution will be over. There's, there's joy in this book. He's talking about the harsh realities of physical persecution and opposition, but he says in it all, there's a day of glory coming. I live for that day, and that's how I stand in this era of persecution, and how Peter himself will pay the ultimate cost. He will die for Christ. He'll be executed because he stands for Christ. But I see a day of glory coming. So I, as an elder among you, serving the flock of God in the same way that you are, in the same capacity that you are, I exhort you this way. Before we get to the exhortation yet, though, I think it is important that we stop and say, who are these elders? What does he mean when he says fellow elder, or I exhort the elders? Elders was a widely recognized term in the ancient world for overseers in many contexts. Elders led the synagogue. Elders led the Sanhedrin, the highest governing body in Israel, the synagogue where the Jews worshipped. They would have understood elders as a, as a statement of or a position of leadership. Elders was an identifying term in various types of leaders among pagan Greeks as well. It was not purely a, a term used among Jewish people. As we come to the New Testament, elders develop as a body of leaders who exercise watch care over the local church. The term is used by an array of New Testament authors. The Apostle Paul, Luke, the physician and author of Acts particularly, Peter here, James as well, all of them speak of elders. And this word elders is used across a wide swath of geographical locations among churches that had both Jewish and Gentile members within them. In Acts chapter 14, and I'm going to uh, put these on the screen here, you can certainly turn to them as well, but in Acts 14.23, in this context, the Apostle Paul and his evangelistic team strengthens new, largely Gentile churches in the cities of Lystra, Iconium, 
and Pisidian Antioch. And as he goes back through the Roman province here and helps establish these churches, we read that when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the apostle goes through this region and evangelizes, turns back around, and in, and in stabilizing those churches, we see here, he appointed elders for them in every church. Appointing elders to lead local churches was one way that Paul strengthens the churches. In Acts chapter 15, we have a major theological dispute that develops in the history of the early church, and Paul and Barnabas take the matter to the Jerusalem church, which at that time was the mothership of the Christian faith. And we read there in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Elders here are clearly referenced as those who have authority in the church and will consider this particular question. After the council arrives at a decision, we read this, verses 22 and following, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. The elders are part of the church, but they are distinguished here as a group of leaders along with the apostles. But the entire church chooses men from among them and sends them to Antioch with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. So they, they speak in an official capacity delivering the decision of this council. And then with authoritative voice, as this decision is announced, the elders speak as representatives of the congregation. We saw also in chapter 15. Now chapter 20 in verse 17, we read this as Paul calls the elders, as we read it earlier today, from Miletus he calls the elders of the church to come to him. His instructions in chapter 20, as we read them earlier, make it perfectly clear that these elders are assigned spiritual leadership in the local church. Here's how I lived among you, he says as an apostle. You live this way now among the church here at Ephesus. And bear out the same example. And preach the same message. And serve the flock in the same way as I have. Much more could be said, but suffice it here to say that elders were a team of leaders who shared the task and authority of pastoring the local church. That's who they are. That's what we see in the text of Scripture as it develops. Now, I would disagree, and respectfully and lovingly, but I would disagree with the argument that this form of church government was rendered obsolete. And that we should now have say, single pastors, that there should not be elders in churches, a plurality of pastoral functions. Some would argue that that's where we've come, that's where we should be, and that this form has, has passed out of uh, existence. I would also disagree with those who argue that the church should have additional offices beyond elders and deacons, which many communions do, as a hierarchy develops of leadership over local churches. If we stay with what the text of Scripture says, we, we look at it carefully, and I realize this is divisive among churches, but what we find in the text of Scripture is that the apostles and elders walk together. First, the church is led by the apostles. Then, the development of apostles and elders. 
And as the text of Acts works its way to the end, we have references only to the elders who are leading the church as the apostles move off the scene and eventually die. But the idea of a group of leaders within a local congregation is something that we find very clearly described in the pages of Scripture. Now there's many who would subtract from that and change it, and there's many who would add to it and thus, I think, change it. But the New Testament text, we should have confidence, teaches this, that there is to be a team of elders. Now we would not argue that it has to be a plurality. In some situations, perhaps there's only one individual who would qualify to lead a church. But this is the group that Peter's talking to. The elders who are among you, who are in your various congregations, as he writes to various people, uh, various churches. With this introductory word then, he now gives the word of instruction to the elders where, where he's been aiming this whole time. So verse 1 is all qualifying. He identifies with them. Now look at verse 2. At verse 2, we come to the main command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd is an excellent translation of the Greek word that is here. If your translation has a word other than shepherd, it's really not a good translation and there's no reason for it. I don't quite understand why some have changed the word, but there's actually a play on words here. It is shepherd the sheep, is the way that the Greek text would, would work. So shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It is God's flock, we notice here. The church belongs to Him. Jesus bought it with His blood. It's His church. And so God calls the elders to shepherd His flock. Not their flock. Not a flock of their making. Not one they possess and own, but one that Jesus has purchased. It's His flock. It will always be only His flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you. God calls the elders to shepherd as we search the New Testament. This means that they are to feed the flock God's Word. It means they will lead the flock to minister and to prosper. It means that they will tend the flock and defend it against assaults from the world, the flesh and the devil. They will speak and say, this is wrong. They will speak and say, this is right. Here's the way that Jesus calls His flock to go. But specifically here, Peter summarizes, and he is summarizing through this whole section clearly, but he summarizes the duty as exercising oversight. So verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. The command to shepherd reflects the function of a pastor. The command to exercise oversight, the function of an overseer. And we should recognize that overseer and elder are interchangeable terms. In Acts 20, 17, and 28, and in Titus 1, 5, and 7, in both of these places, the same individuals are referred to with both terms as elder and overseer. Interchangeable terms. They are elders, they are overseers, they are pastors. Simply said, the duty of elders is to shepherd the flock by exercising watch care over it. They are assigned that task. Peter now describes how this is to be done and how it is not to be done. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Verse 3. 
or verse 2 rather. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you literally, as according to God, which means something like according to God's will. Not under compulsion. That is a gracious word. Think of the situation. In light of the need for leaders in the persecuted church, I mean, people are not standing in line to lead churches that are taking direct hit from the enemy. They're not lining up to get into the career of pastor of a persecuted church. And we could imagine in this situation that it would be extremely difficult to come by leaders, and it's dangerous that God would then demand godly men step forward and render oversight. You need to take this responsibility as others, this responsibility as others are pointing you to it. But the Lord of the church makes no such demand. He knows that if a man does not want to lead the flock of God, he will not be able to lead it well. Everyone else may think he should, but if he doesn't want to, he should not do it. It's a gracious word. If there's not a God-implanted desire in his heart, the flock will suffer under his charge anyway. Whether it's persecution or need, whatever the, the issue is, the flock will not prosper. We might almost question the sanity of a man who wants to take on such a responsibility. Caring for a flock is a work that never ends. He goes to sleep with the church on his mind, and he wakes up with the church on his mind. And there's never really a time where it turns off, and once in a while the life of the church even invades his dreams. Oh, he's scary. He knows the responsibilities are so many and so great that he will never do anything very well. And then no matter how sincere his efforts, some will criticize or resist in ways that cut deeply and leave lasting scars. Many times they don't even know it. He's also accountable to Almighty God for the watch care of souls for whom Jesus Christ himself died. That's a sobering thought. It's not his flock. It's the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for his people. Putting it all together, you might rightly question the sanity of a man who welcomes such a responsibility. I think really the point is that only God can give a real and holy desire for such work. So if the desire is not there, the man should not serve. It's really not right for him to do so because there must be something uniquely happening in his life that points to the work of God. Willingly, as God would have you, according to the plan and purpose of God. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, we find at the end of verse 2. This line of instruction assumes that it is right and proper for him to gain living, pastoring the flock. But as 1 Timothy 5.17 indicates, this is even to be expected to, some, to varying degrees, but never is he to see this work as a means of dishonest gain. I mean, all you've got to do is read newspapers and watch certain television channels 
and know that there are people out there who are doing exactly that. They are using a pastoral office to line their pockets with the wealth of other people. That, says Peter, is wicked. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That is, rather than be driven by money, rather than be driven by the expectations of others, he's to be driven by a desire to carry out the work of God. To shepherd the flock. To exercise oversight of God's people. And to serve that way before the Lord. There's to be an eagerness, an enthusiasm for the task that continues to drive and motivate him for this moral responsibility. Verse 3 continues, the not this, but this. Not domineering over those in his charge. Domineering. Those in his charge. The idea of the phrase is those God has assigned to your watch care. It is against God's will for a shepherd to use his position of leadership in the church to harm people. He's not to lead by intimidation or by threats. He's not to lead in a demanding manner that wields power like a whip. He's not to pull rank, push his ideas on people, or demand unquestioning loyalty or obedience. He's not to insulate himself from all criticism or surround himself with people who protect him from all critique. He's not to have a harsh tongue that badgers and offends. This is not to say he should never issue a hard word of rebuke or take a firm position. Study the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul and it's very clear that there will be times when he must say hard things and oppose people. But he should be a shepherd who leads the flock in the way they should go, not a cattle driver who whips them from behind who uses his tongue to bite and sting and press, who pressures and manipulates. He should not say, live like I'm telling you to live. But first and primarily should say, follow me as I follow Christ. No one's sufficient for this. But, His life should be a strong bridge that moves people to Christ, not a roadblock that serves as an impediment to their walk with the Lord. Every flock is going to need to be gracious and to overlook weaknesses, to overlook sin indeed from time to time. But the flock should look at his life and say, because of that man, I want to know Christ better. Because of this leader in our church, I want to know God's Word better. Because of the ministry of this elder, I want to live for Christ. That is his command to the elders. It's a serious one. It's a high responsibility and calling. He now gives the prospect in all of this for the elders. He says in verse 4, and it's a prospect which calls them to consider their responsibility, but which also encourages them in the work when he says, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is a reference to whom? 
Obviously, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd. He referred to himself as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. This shepherd will come again. There again is our future prospect. The only way that we can handle suffering and persecution in this world. And when he does come, he will demand an accounting for elders as his under-shepherds. Those who live and serve the church in line with the representative instructions that Peter provides here will receive reward. The reward is stated here in verse 4 as the unfading crown of glory. The Greek word for crown is stephanos or stephanon here. It's not a diadem worn by a king. It's not a party wreath worn by a, a reveler in a Greek party or time to worship the gods. This kind of crown was awarded rather to someone who had accomplished a great victory. So the Stephanos was given to a victor in the athletic games and placed on their head. It was given, for instance, to a conquering general as he came into the city and was uh, celebrated. This great battle was celebrated and a crown would be put on his head. The crown was a symbol of achievement and honor. They were basically made of twisted uh, vines of some sort. Parsley, ivy, bay leaves, olive leaves, something of the sort. Just twisted together and made into a, a circle and placed on the victor's head. But what would happen to such crowns? Obviously in no time they would fade and very quickly turn to dust. But this crown says Peter, is an unfading crown. It is a crown of glory which probably refers to life in heaven as opposed to a literal crown. I don't know, maybe in glory there are literal crowns that could be, but the way that the word crown is used pervasively in the New Testament is that it is used to describe the gaining of eternal life itself. The crown is life. The crown is glory in the presence of the Lord. So such a crown is won by all who persevere in the faith. And there is a recognition then by, uh, for all in perseverance and perhaps uniquely in some way for those who have been faithful under shepherds before the shepherd. Now some people get nervous here. They object and say, I don't like that idea. I don't need any reward in heaven. And isn't it true that if I'm serving here to get reward in heaven that my motives are really impure? There's one thing I've found of everybody who offers that objection. They seem to be living really, really hard for rewards here. When you live for the reward of heaven, you are proving you believe it is. When you're living for the reward of heaven, you're saying there is a God who will judge the living and the dead. And I live my life here by faith that that day will come. And I will meet my Savior. And there will be an accounting. Those who object and say, I don't like the way, that way of thinking is partly because they're not living that way. They're living for the rewards of this life. So to live for the reward of heaven is pretty solid proof that we're heading the right way. And that the thing that will please our ears more than anything else in this universe will be the words of the Lord who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now that place for all of us is different. There are different callings. There are different gifts. There are different positions. 
but for that one who serves the cause of Christ faithfully before Him, there is the reward of eternal life. There is the reward that we don't fully understand, but a meeting with Christ that will be rewarded. He will never remain in our debt. Anything that we do for Christ will last for eternity and will bear infinite fruit. The only time we struggle with that idea is when we're living for this life and we really don't want to think about eternity. He sets all of this, Peter sets all of this in his instructions in this eschatological sense, this end time sense of the reward that will come. So he's gone from exhortation. He's gone to prospect what will come in reward. And then in verse 5, I think we find here a call to the younger to submit to the elders. Elders, you're to do this. Here's where it's heading. And now let me address the church. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now Peter has a number of complicated problems for us to unravel in this book, and this is one of them. There is great complicated debate about whether elders here means older people or whether it means pastors of the flock as it's meant in context. Without getting into the debate, let me just state the conclusions that I've come to for lack of anything better to do here with the time that we have. Uh, We could go into it at length. But the elders in verse 5, I've come to believe, are the elders in verses 1 through 4. That is, Peter's not shifting to a different meaning of elder here, now speaking of older people in the assembly. Secondly, younger, I think, refers to younger members of the assembly who may be more likely than their elders to fail to appreciate the leadership of elders. Older members might be expected here at this place in Peter's writing to, so to speak, nod their head in agreement as Peter speaks to the younger people of the congregation right here at this place. Likewise, you who are younger in the assembly, be subject to the elders. He's just picking the younger out here. Now, some could say, and it might be the possibility, that we're using younger here as a technical term as well. So elder is a technical term. doesn't necessarily mean a guy that's really, really old. Elder is a technical term, speaking of leadership in the flock, it could be that younger is a technical term talking about everybody else. Possibly. But at any rate, if that's not the case, I think he's talking about younger people within the assembly. And just picks them out here. Now he's done this routinely. This is one of the reasons I think we can come to this conclusion. We've had husbands and wives, for instance, in chapter 3, both addressed. Two parties addressed. And here... He's addressing some within the assembly, if not the entire assembly. These younger people are to honor the leadership of the elders. A divided church is not fit to stand against persecution. A younger member who despises the guidance of the elders that God has placed over them are not understanding one of the fundamental lessons of maturity. Learning to bring oneself under subjection to godly leaders is not an option. It is God's will. It's one way that He works with His people to bring us to maturity. Every one of us, in some aspect of our life, in fact, in multiple aspects of our life, must come to the place where we submit to leadership. Western cultures don't like that kind of talk. 
But when we think about it, it's how life really flows and moves forward. God knows this. Christ knows this of His church. And so He makes this pointed statement that some in their immaturity perhaps were struggling with. In fact, we find the same exact words used in other instructions in the early church fathers as they instructed congregations. Submit to the guidance and the leadership of the church. You may not always want to. It may be very difficult. You may be frustrated with them who lead with those who lead, but your calling is to subject yourself to their leadership. This is not a blind submission to do whatever they say. When it crosses the will of God, there's a higher authority to the Lord, and all of this understood. There is nonetheless great wisdom here as God talks to the church and says to all of us, there's a strategy that you as a member should put in place. That strategy is to look at the spiritual leadership in your church and to seek to walk in line with it. Rather than resist it at every turn, rather than constantly question, raising expectations that are perhaps not even biblical expectations, rather than orienting yourself that way, choose to orient yourself to the way to say, in this way, saying, I will cooperate. I'll seek to go in the direction that the leadership is pointing. It's not to say the leaders are always right. It's not to say that it's wrong to object at times. It's not certainly wrong as we work together as a church and strive to be a church that communicates effectively for us to disagree. But it's a fundamental orientation that is saying, as a member of the flock, I'm going to run with the program. Not be one who is always in a position of resistance. I'll do my own thing my own way is not the mentality of a maturing church member. I believe the thought ends here in the middle of verse 5 and we'll pick up there next week. That's a debatable point as well. But I think that's where the paragraph would break off and we'll, we'll pick up at that point next week. But what have we learned? What have we been reminded of that we know? Elders are called to shepherd the flock of God and exercise oversight in the assembly. They are to do this in zealous faithfulness. When they do, as with every believer in Christ, they may anticipate eternal reward, the joy of walking in fellowship with God for eternity. And all the congregation, maybe perhaps especially the young, are to choose to follow their spiritual shepherds, which means that they should seek their counsel and act upon their teaching and say, let's go together. We're with you. We'll run forward. We'll tell you where we disagree. We won't run over a cliff. And if you begin to control the church such that it seems like it's yours and not Christ, we're going to stand here and defend Christ. But all of those qualifiers aside, we will run with you. We'll choose to orient ourselves together to unify in mind and thought and ministry focus and we will serve the Lord together. This is the word of instruction and loving guidance that Christ provides for the health of the flock. Now in all of this, we must not miss that Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. 
All of it falls apart without that concept. And it leads me to ask every one of you here today, we have sung songs about God as shepherd, but I ask you personally, is God your shepherd? Is Jesus Christ the good shepherd in your life? Do you understand what it means to be utterly dependent on Him? To know that your eternal life, to know that your sustenance, that your knowledge of the truth, that your living itself is connected to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Is that true for you? Do you rejoice to know that you are a a sheep in His flock? The answer cannot be based on what you feel or on some experience of your own ordering. It can't be based on just what's going on in your heart right now. But the answer must be based on believing that Jesus Christ is God's Lamb. The Lamb who was sacrificed for the sins of the world. You see, lambs provide food for us and wool for human beings. And flocks provide an ideal metaphor for the local church. But another thing that sheep do, another rich image of the Bible, is that lambs were to be slaughtered for sacrifice. Under the Old Covenant, preparing us for this day, lambs were animals of sacrifice. When the Bible depicts the death of Christ, One image that is used is that Jesus died as the Lamb of God in the place of sinners to pay the debt of their sin. When we see a cross in this culture, it might be on a church that's as dead as a graveyard, but that cross stands as a symbol. That's where Jesus took my place. That's where He stood in for me. My sins against God my failures, my moral weakness was put on Him and there Jesus died as the Lamb of God for me. By God's grace then, Jesus' death can be counted by God as just punishment for my sin and Jesus' righteousness can be given to me as a gift. There's no elder that can give that to you. There's no church hierarchy that can give that to you. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. But the Lord Jesus Christ will give it to you as a gift. Trusting in that message, you can receive the crown of life. And as you do, and for those of us who have, it is now our high calling to walk in fellowship with the church, with the body of Christ, as sheep in God's ordered fold. Let's bow for prayer. We are indeed, Father, again, reminded of how rich we are of what You have accomplished for us and how carefully You have orchestrated the life of the body that we enjoy. May we be ever reminded that this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Your flock. 
We belong to you. You have won us. You have drawn us to yourself. We rejoice in the work that Jesus has done. We pray that you'll draw to Christ anyone who is separated from him. Anyone who says, I'm tired of my sin. I don't find in myself the sufficiency to do what is right, to know the truth. I pray that as a dependent, vulnerable lamb, such people in this congregation would turn to Christ as Savior. For those of us who bleat with joy that you are our shepherd, we thank you. We know that we are not very wise. We are not very courageous. We are very selfish. But we thank you that you are guiding us to take on the characteristics, not of physical sheep, but of the chief shepherd. And I pray that as we do so, that we would shine as light to this dark world, that we would stand up for Christ and be willing to take whatever this world dishes out. Lord, our hearts are heavy for those brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who right now are being persecuted. The 10-year-old girl that was just cut down on her way from church in the Middle East. Our hearts are filled with grief and grief that our media covers so many things and leaves this unsaid. Lord, while our hearts are heavy for them, we rejoice with the eternal crown of glory that is being won all over this world. And pray with our persecuted brothers and sisters that you would uphold them in their particular suffering. And that you will help us to uphold them not only in our prayers, not only in our gatherings, but I pray that we would uphold them by loving them and by standing here for you. May we as a communion of faith stand vulnerably and with great dependence upon you in a hostile world. We commit ourselves to this and we're pouring out this prayer asking that you would answer it for the glory of your name and for the joy of your flock. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please stand and let's reflect upon God's word in our own hearts in silence, considering